Hello and welcome to Sexuality Studies Spotlight, a podcast where we highlight what you can do with your sexuality studies degree. My name is Helen Martin and I'm recording from Tikaranto, an area that has been cared for by the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Huron-Wendat. It is now home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities, and we want to acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This territory is also part of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peacefully share and care for the Great Lakes region. Our guest today is Shraddha Chatterjee, who is joining us from Toronto, or the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nation, Inuit, and Meti people. Tikaranto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit and is marked by ongoing processes of colonialism and racism. Shraddha Chatterjee is a doctoral candidate and Banyay Scholar in Gender, Feminist, and Women's Studies at York University, where they are also a graduate associate at the Center for Feminist Research and York Center for Asian Research. Her research examines how Hindu nationalist sentiment has been mobilized alongside transnational and globalized nations notions of queer liberalism in India. Their interdisciplinary work draws from critical psychology, feminist and queer theory, Lacanian psychoanalysis, anthropology, and area studies. Welcome Shraddha Chatterjee. How are you doing today? Hi Helen, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm doing fine and of course thank you for that wonderful introduction. Is there anything you'd like to add to your introduction today? Um, sure, let's make it a little less impressive. Um, I'll add that I'm a big dog fan. So one of the things that I do whenever I'm out on the street is I randomly whistle at other people's dogs, which is not great, but I continue to do it anyway. I love it. I'm sure the dogs love it as well. (laughs) Here's hoping. Now, shout out, what's your relationship to York Sexuality and Gender Studies program? Um, As you specified, I am in the Gender Feminist and Women's Studies department, and I know that the department offers a sexuality studies course and minor, if I'm not wrong. Um, And my research very much is focused on sexuality. It has been that way for a very long time. Um, Stop me if I'm you know, going way back, but basically when no, I please do <laughs> when I was starting out, um, my undergraduate degree and my master's were in psychology. And um mainstream psychology was always a little bit troubling because it sometimes very uncritically looked at mental health and um questions of diagnosis and Essentially, my first forays into questions about gender and sexuality emerged from those spaces where I wondered why diagnosis was different for men and women with the same symptoms or why a lot of diagnoses were quite gendered or um, kind of tried to really discriminate against people who were not heterosexual or did not want to kind of fit into a very normative mold of what life should look like. And around the time that I was graduating my master's degree, I came across this film that was produced by a non-governmental organization that worked with 
lesbian, bisexual and trans people in West Bengal in India. And the documentary was a kind of fact-finding mission on the suicide that had happened in a village in West Bengal where these two women had committed suicide. And the really difficult thing about the documentary was that and about the suicide was that their deaths were not claimed by their families. So um, their bodies had not been claimed after they passed away and essentially had to be buried by the state. And uh, the documentary featured their suicide letter and then also kind of used that as a way to really talk about how many queer people want to commit suicide because of how the world really treats them. And I don't know, something about that documentary stayed with me. Something about these two women stayed with me in a way that uh, was unshakable and remains unshakable for me. Um, After I completed my master's degree, I kind of went to West Bengal to work with this organization and, you know, auditing of courses at a research center in West Bengal and learned cultural studies and basically after that came into an MPhil, which is, I guess, higher than a master's, but a little lower than a PhD in women and gender studies and eventually did my PhD in gender studies. So I guess that's how my journey with sexuality studies really started. Um, And because this was my journey, um, I, I think one of the really unshakable beliefs I have is that sexuality frames almost everything in life and it frames everything in life in a way that can be very very diverse like what I mean by that is that the effects that sexuality can have or the discourses through which sexuality is talked about can be very very diverse and I think if we look very closely the Politics of sexuality can really be found in in a lot of aspects of not only our daily life, but even the extraordinary things that we consider to be far away from us. Like it can it can be something that we can see in how policy is made. It can be something we see in how incarceration happens. It can be something we see in how migration happens, in how families are organized, um, and, and so much more. So I think this is really the, the value of a sexuality studies program that it can really highlight all of these things for somebody who's in the program, and allow them to adopt almost a new lens with which to interrogate life. Right. I, I absolutely love that answer. I think it's so interesting what you said about seeing the film and that really staying with you, because I think for a lot of people who get involved in higher education, it's one article, one film, and it just stays with them and inspires the rest of their work and research career. Now, can you give me a little bit in, of an overview of what your current work and research is today? Sure. And it's it's great because it's it's actually so much in line with um, this suicide that, again, like I said, all changed my life in so many ways. Um, when I moved from working with this 
organization into my MPhil in women and gender studies, um, my MPhil research was basically looking at how queer activisms in India could have maybe avoided this suicide. So my question came from a very almost desperate place where I was trying to figure out what did queer activisms need to do to make sure that other women like this don't die or pass away. And basically what that meant was that my research shaped up into a kind of look at how queer activisms had developed in India since the 1990s and also how queer activists themselves kind of um, express their own limitations and what the reasons for those limitations might have been. And simultaneously, I was really engaging very closely with this documentary again and with the suicide note. And I was looking at the politics of how their death had been represented. So when I looked at the documentary quite closely, it allowed me to see that a lot of things had been um, left out simply because the organization wanted to focus on this death as a lesbian suicide. So we didn't pay enough attention as an organization on the class angle, like they were from a rural village. Um, We didn't pay enough attention to their caste. They were from a lower caste and essentially we didn't focus on that or what that might have meant. And one of the things that I learned from that experience of doing this research was that the organization knew this as well. When they reflected on the documentary themselves, they knew this and they knew that they had to correct for it in the future. And they've absolutely done that in the next years of their organizational and like welfare kind of work. Um, But it also pointed to me a very serious kind of lack in how politics is shaped because one of the things that happens very often is that if you try to talk about too many issues together in an intersectional kind of way, it really hinders policy making and it really hinders the kind of impact you can have because people kind of disengage saying that this is too complicated or get lost in all of that data. And this was one of the foundational things that even Kimberly Crenshaw's article originally talked about, um, where it where it kind of defined intersectionality through a kind of legal example and showed that it was at the intersection of race and gender that basically justice was not done. And so that became my MPhil research, which eventually became a book. And I kind of... Um, moved a little beyond that. And in my PhD, I'm now looking at how queer movements in India, again, I'm I'm relying on this solid base where I look at how queer movements in India and activisms have evolved since the 1990s. What are the structural causes for which they have become the way that they have at this time? And I'm also looking at how in the present moment, they might be supporting or resisting the Hindu nationalist movement that has kind of really kind of, I guess, advanced in the country in the past few years. Um, One of the things that I'm learning through my research is that 
queer activisms in India have been kind of unevenly developed in the sense that in the 1990s, when HIV AIDS funding started to come in from all of these foreign uh, bodies, they went to mostly um, organizations that were working on transgender rights or went to organizations that were working on gay men's, uh, you know, like gay men's rights or homosexuality, but only amongst men because those were considered to be the target audiences. And what that did was it kind of left out um, organizations that were working on lesbian and bisexual women's sexualities and trans men had not even emerged on the picture um, until much like and and that happened much later yeah so basically what that funding did was it also kind of ensured that uh, some of the agendas of the larger queer movement would be set by people who had more funding and that's just the natural way in which things progress I guess and one of the big issues became decriminalizing sexuality in the country um Again, I'm not saying at all that that shouldn't have happened. I'm just saying that it became a big issue because um, of the way in which funding and also this kind of global discourse of what it means to be an emancipated queer person, you know, like entered the Indian space in the 1990s and early 2000s. And again, uh, whenever some issues become very important, they do exclude other issues. and what happens what happened now essentially in 2018 was that homosexuality was decriminalized but what that also allowed us to really do was um it allowed for a lot of criticisms to emerge that had been simmering for a long time so a lot of trans people have come out and said that their rights have been ignored and decriminalization of homosexuality became the only law that queer activisms have focused on instead of other laws like the anti-trafficking law, which really impacts them much more than the decriminalization law did. Um, a lot of lower caste activists or anti-caste activists have come out and talked about how these queer spaces have been equally discriminatory towards them because there hasn't been an understanding of caste in that context. And so a lot of critiques have emerged now and India finds itself in a very interesting position at this moment where after decriminalization, a lot of corporations uh, have moved towards really like these diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives that are looking to promote queerness. But at the same time, the criticisms of queer activisms have also never been higher or more potent than right now. And of course, within this, there is this whole politics of rising Hindu nationalism and how a lot of queer activists are actually supporting this rising Hindu nationalism because they are finding themselves mainstreamed at this time. So in a way, there is this rhetoric that's circulating that we got our rights, we don't need to worry about anything else. And so what they're essentially saying is that they are not inclined to worry about the injustices that are happening with other minority communities in the country at this time. 
Whereas, again, there is this other section of queer activists who have always been left out of these funding discourses, who have a more robust sense of what queer politics should look like, um, a more intersectional sense, a more, I I think, ethical sense. And they continue to oppose the Hindu nationalist overtures. But now, instead of getting marked as homosexual, they get marked as anti-national. And I think that's that's the kind of track that my research is taking at this time. That's so interesting. You, you have so much to work through there. Um, and the intersectional piece of it is so important, but as you say, can make things really complicated, but in a really good and helpful way as well. Do you mind sharing what the name of the film you've referenced is? Yes, the film is called And the Unclaimed. Uh, It's a documentary that was produced by Sappho for Equality. And Sappho for Equality continues to be one of the most well-known organizations that work on lesbian, bisexual and trans men's rights in Eastern India in general. So please do check it out. Perfect. Thank you. Now, may I ask how long it's been that you've been doing this work? Um, my MPhil research started in 2014. I started to work with uh, Safo very briefly in 2013. And eventually the book came out in 2018. My PhD started in 2017. So I've done this for almost a decade now. Next year, it's going to be just like we're just shy of 10 years. Wow. And you've already accomplished so much in in a short period of time like that. Now, what has been your favorite part of your work and your research? Um, Again, I think one of the best things about working on sexuality is that it never ceases to surprise you. You can really engage with it from so many different lenses. And um, I think this is also why my work is very decidedly interdisciplinary and intersectional because there's just so much to look at, but also so many different aspects of life open up because of this. And I think, to be honest, one of the most interesting questions that I have been able to ask because of my work has been around the question of desire. And again, I I, I know that this is a question that emerges because I moved very decidedly from psychology to gender studies, right? Like if I think if I hadn't done that, this question wouldn't have emerged for me. But I ask a question around desire and essentially about what it is to kind of have a good understanding of desire and how desire can be a psychic but also a political thing. So one of the first things that I kind of engaged with was this question of um, why a lot of political movements fail is because a lot of our politics is not internalized, right? So, for example, a lot of the ways in which we can do our activism can, like, it doesn't necessarily reflect on our real lives, our politics or our activisms don't necessarily change the way in which we choose to live our lives. I think that has to be a very conscious commitment to changing our desires. And I think that is why the question of desire is very important. So 
this is a simple example and um i'm not at all like saying this to find fault in somebody who does this or something but it's just an example of how things work right like for example we are inaugurated into a kind of feminist ethic and one of the things that have become really popular in recent times are wearing necklaces that say feminist or t-shirts that say feminist on them um but does that mean that you really are a feminist right like does that mean that you have kind of changed how you live your life or changed what you want from life because of that and i think that is a very difficult question we all struggle with that um and i think it's a question that we struggle with always i don't think it ever has a concluding kind of moment so that to me is the most interesting question that what does it take for political discourse or activism to change what we desire truly and at the same time it goes the other way around as well uh what is it about our desires that kind of resists being changed by political articulation very very easily or very quickly and this question is an interesting one because it really allows us to think about how our biases can be very very ingrained and very intimately held and therefore very very hard to shake or change um yeah i guess just for me very personally that is the most interesting part of my work that's such an interesting way to phrase it and i think one that makes so much sense of sort of the desire and politics and the tension that's between them i and as i i think your example of the the feminist t-shirt and feminist slogans and such that we use is you're right. It's really interesting. And as you say, there's no uh, conclusion to it, which can be hard, but that it's still a really important discussion to be having. I love that. Thank you so much. So what do you most want to contribute to knowledge about sexuality or sexuality and gender? Um, I think it's, it's honestly just this, right? One of, I mean, one of the things that I do want to convey is that um really focusing on the question of desire can help us not only embrace our imperfections like i know that especially in a social media age um with a lot of internet access it can be great because we can learn a lot about politics or about you know what is the right thing to say or the right thing to do but at the same time there is also this increasing culture of you know i guess like canceling somebody because they are not necessarily uh always saying the right thing or or you know behaving in the right way and again i want to very much clarify that i am not against cancel culture i think cancel culture has a certain kind of use but what i'm trying to say is one of the things that we can learn from staying with the question of desire at this time is that it can help us really embrace our imperfections in a way that is not threatening but can be used to really commit to an ongoing work of whatever equality might mean so not simply with the question of sexuality but also gender also race um and also other i guess questions of marginality right like instead of focusing on what the right thing to say is what we can do with the question of desire is to focus on how we can change what we want how we can change what we need from this world and that is a much slower a much more imperfect 
a non-linear kind of process. And it's a process that is, I think, filled with many roadblocks. It's a process that is filled with, you know, almost many potholes. And this is why also an attention to our psychic life becomes very important. Um, To give a very concrete example, again, returning to one of the, I guess, most sustained questions of feminist theory um, has been that a lot of feminist activists will say that um, they want to participate in submission fantasies in their sexual life. And again, it opens up this question of how our desire is linked to our political life. And I think a lot of people have been troubled by this, that, you know, how can we be feminist but want to engage in this kind of, you know, fantasy? And what does that mean? And so on. And I think there's been a lot of, to be to be sure, there's been a lot of bad literature on it. But I think the question here remains important that no matter how committed you can be to politics, desire can sometimes say something else, right? Like it can it can really kind of undercut um, a lot of the work that you want to do. And, and I think to me, that is, again, like not only the most interesting question for me, but it should, I think to me, it, it means that it can be one of the most interesting things that we can all learn from as scholars of sexuality, uh, gender studies, and so on. Yeah, I, I love that you've added in that concrete example there, because I think a lot of uh, people, and especially a lot of people who identify as feminists, no matter their gender, can definitely relate to that sort of tension of why do I want this, but also believe this to be true. And I mean, I'm sort of of the the mindset that judging your desires is never going to be a helpful uh, step, but that it's it's a really interesting one that, as I say, I think a lot of people could relate to. Yeah, Helen, you're right. Um, I think judging our desires is like quite a futile thing to do. Um, at the same time, I think um, what I'm advocating for here is an attention to our desires, but not necessarily uh, a giving in to them. You know what I mean? Like, and And here I'm not I'm I'm hoping that I'm making it clear that I'm not continuing from my previous example. But what I'm saying is that, for example, if we recognize in ourselves a desire to be violent or um, unjust, I don't think it helps to say to ourselves that this is, uh, I guess, like, oh, how can I how can I think this or how can I do this, even though that moment can be valuable. But I think at the same time, it shouldn't be used as an excuse to also let your let oneself be and 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 kind of enact that desire, right. So there has to be some kind of balance there as well between um, how to accept our desires for what they are, but then also be committed to not, you know, um, well, enact- the world- yeah. Yeah, the world of desire is so I think we think of it as such a personal thing, but it's so influenced by the politics and the culture and how we've been socialized generally. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think this is again like truly a very a very productive but also a very vexed and difficult space for um I mean not just me but also for a lot of activists for I think feminist theory, queer theory, sexuality studies. And the reason why this has been such a difficult space is because desire is a difficult question, honestly. I couldn't agree more. We we could be talking about just that all day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Now, so 
What are the kind of people who have been some really interesting people that you've been able to meet and connect with through your work, through your research? Um, I think one of the best things for me has been to really stay connected with activists in India. And um, I do less of it now because of the PhD and because of the demands of the PhD, honestly. But I think I'm always going to be grateful that my journey into women's studies and gender studies uh, and queer theory started from almost an activist space. And and I think that has been almost invaluable to my life and my approach to sexuality studies and feminist theory, where one of the first things and I and I and I think I've been thinking about this for a while now, uh, more recently, that one of the foundational questions for me therefore became that uh you know what are the tensions between how much theory has progressed and how activism needs to happen right like there is a in some ways a kind of difference between the practices that activists have to employ and the practices of academics and Precisely because sexuality studies, feminist theory, queer theory, like this entire kind of school of thought, precisely because it emerges from activist histories, it also remains with that kind of contradiction. And I think that contradiction um, pushes us as activists, but also pushes us as academics. Uh, Again, it's one of those questions that you can't answer very easily. Um, And precisely because you can't answer it very easily, it stays with you for a long time. And because of that, it it creates a lot. It's it's very productive. So one of the most interesting people I have met, one of the most um, reflective and intelligent and astute people I have met have been from outside the world of academia because they are very, very almost on a cellular level attuned to world around them and to life around them. And this has been my queer feminist friends in India. It has also been, you know, it's also been people I've met here. Again, I I think I always appreciate people who do ask this question of what the world needs in a very um, intimate and urgent way. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know if that's a complete answer for you but no so- no that totally is I think it's really important that academics are also still working with activists and sort of people who are on the ground so to speak to sort of not lose themselves in the academic work and to make sure it's actually um, helping people right because that's the goal hopefully absolutely now I know this can be a hard question but is there an accomplishment that you're most proud of so far um no, I no, I, I think it is a hard question, but it's also uh, it's also a question that I don't know reminds me too much of um, funding applications or or something. So I, I usually don't like like questions like these because I think one of the um, one of the most important things for me has been that all the work that I have done has been, almost in association with other people or learning from other people. My research has always been, um, uh, you know, has always employed some kind of anthropological method. This one has been about an ethnography. The previous one was also, you know, a kind of quasi-ethnography and interviewing. So 
even my research at the you know the best thing about my research has been that it's been in collaboration um with other people and has again like the politics of academic life is that because i wrote it individually i have to say that it was my work and in some ways i did i did shape it and give words to it but at the same time i consider that indivisible from what i have learned from my participants and 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 in many ways it is their work in that sense and so i don't think that there has been an accomplishment as such what i can say is that i've enjoyed doing this kind of uh i've enjoyed doing this kind of work precisely because it puts me in touch with activists who are i think doing this work much more front and center than i am one of the reasons why i chose academics and not activism was because fortunately or unfortunately i fell in love with teaching and um despite all the problems with <laughs> academia i continue to believe in a very hopeless kind of way that teaching can change the world because it can it can put me in touch with students every year who can leave my classroom asking questions that they didn't necessarily ask before or think about before and to me that is the most important thing so i i don't think there are accomplishments i think there are only intentions and i'm i'm sorry for like rerouting your question that way no i think if anything that's actually a better way to phrase it um and understanding that yes of course you are an essential piece of this but it can't be done without um everyone else that you're working with absolutely you can't do this kind of work alone Now that said, are there any goals or work that you're really looking forward to in the future? Um yes. So one of the things that I want to do from my research is of course like do another book, but as I was saying a little bit in the previous answer, I think I'm really excited about teaching. I'm excited about continuing research that puts me in touch with people again on a very, you know, grounded, participatory kind of level. um one of the good things again and bringing this back to sexuality studies one of the good things about my work has been that i can really address questions of the contemporary so whatever is urgent in the contemporary moment can be really um i think for me that is the most that becomes in some ways the important question and sexuality studies also lends itself well to that you know like for example and i'm sorry if this is too technical one of the most prevalent or like one of the longest debates in queer theory has been this question of what is queer about queer studies now and every 10 years we have some like you know uh i guess like leading scholars in the field come up and try and answer this question about what is queer about queer studies or what is queer about queerness and one of the good things about that is that just like desire the the goalposts always continue to shift towards what is most radical what is most urgent and i think i really value that in my own work so so in many ways my goals are aligned with that kind of goal that i need to address what is most critical in in the contemporary moment and another goal is to kind of find a way to teach students and uh work with students to i don't know i think in a very in a very basic way my hope is that they can take from me my own enthusiasm for asking questions and if 
I and I think that's it. That's really that's really it because after that it doesn't matter almost uh, what kind of questions they ask. But the important thing is that they can continue to ask questions and and I think that that can really do things and change things. Absolutely. I I completely agree. So sort of on that note, do you have any recommendations for people, um, current students or not, who'd like to get involved in similar work to you? Um, My suggestion would be to keep reading, uh, but also to find a way to ask from every single thing that they read that does this speak to life for me? And does this speak to life right now? So when you begin to reflect on every reading based on your own experience, uh, based on the experience of others around you or what you see in life around you, it can really bring out something special about the text, but it can also highlight the limitations of the text. And both things are very important and very valuable. So one of the things that I would always suggest is to keep reading to read outside your discipline. I know that sexuality studies is a discipline loosely defined in some ways and interdisciplinary at the heart of it. But I think reading beyond that, reading something that is not at all related to sexuality or rather what you think is not at all related to sexuality will be great because once you are done reading it, you will realize that somehow the question of sexuality can be inaugurated there. And I think those are just some some things to keep in mind um i know that sometimes the challenge of doing this kind of work uh or like majoring maybe in sexuality studies can be really thinking about what careers or what career paths are available but again i think i have a strong belief that sexuality really is about almost everything so a lot of career paths are open and I think if people are listening who are going to graduate soon or who want to already think about what jobs to apply to after your degrees, really think about the skills that you've learned in the program, skills of research, skills of reading closely, skills of summarizing a text, skills of compiling a lot of information. And those skills will lead you towards, you know, some ideas about what kind of work you can do in the future. Right. I think that's a great answer. Thank you. Now, what has your experience with York specifically and York sexuality and gender studies been like? Um, I think we have some really great faculty right off the bat. Um, One of the reasons why I chose to come to York was because so many people were working on sexuality and in a very, very interesting way. Um, We have leading scholars on transgender studies. We have leading scholars who are looking at sexuality and the question of migration, nationalism, diaspora, borders, which are such important questions, uh, especially in today's day and age. We have scholars who are looking at sexuality through questions of race. Again, very, very urgent in today's times. Um, So... I think York is one of the best places to be at for sexuality studies and feminist theory. A big department also means that students have the choice of choosing a lot of courses that are diverse, but then that diversity can be very productive because you can try and put together almost very diverse streams of thought together in your mind and see what comes up. And 
I think the department staff is so supportive. This is not a sh- story that I share very often, but when I had been applying for the PhD programs, I had made it into a few and I chose York precisely because the conversations that I had had with the GPD and with the departmental staff had been very warm and welcoming. And I knew that I wanted to choose a program that had great faculty, but that would also create an atmosphere for me where I felt very supported, especially as an international student. So again, I have never met a friendlier and a more helpful staff. So, you know, if you're considering coming here, I think you should just do it. Right. Okay, good. A very positive response. That's what we like to hear. (laughs) Perfect. And again, you've touched on this a little bit um, already, but why do you think it's important to study sexuality in the social world? Because, again, I think because life is almost governed and determined by sexuality. Um, And I'm saying it very, very badly, but I think Michel Foucault says it very well. I know he's not very popular now anymore. Um, But I remember in my master's years, I read History of Sexuality and it kind of blew my mind because I was sitting there going like, wait, but I can talk about sexuality, but that's problematic. But then I can't talk about it and that's problematic. What do you mean? You know, and I think this was one of the (laughs) one of the characteristic things of the of, you know, of the work that um, what Foucault and I think actually a lot of other scholars have been able to tell us is that sexuality really governs everything and um, in a way that again is not overwhelming so for example sex I will never say that sexuality is the thing that governs everything um, entirely or in totality but what is interesting is how sexuality kind of intersects with a lot of other things to shape life Um, so for example the very obvious places to look at would be places like Tinder, Grindr, your other dating apps, right? Like, you know that those are spaces where some very interesting lessons can be learned about sexuality, sexual life, desire, um, and and social life. But also just seemingly so many other things that are very, very small. Um, do you hold the hand of somebody when you're walking on the street? Or how close do you choose to be with your friends versus your partner um how many partners do you choose to have um do you have aspirations of building a house and who do you see yourself in that house with now those are questions that are about how social life is structured but at the end of the day also about sexual desire desire in general and ethics question and and i think like to me that is that is very beautiful and and again like so many other things as well um how do you choose to look at your body how do other people choose to look at your body um how do you feel in it those are questions of embodiment but also about sexuality gender about norms um questions of policy um and even questions of for example in the classroom what are the things that you're allowed to do? How is it that you're supposed to behave? Um, what are the things that you're allowed to say? All those are questions that can be marked by sexuality as well. So so really, I think truly an encompassing field uh, of inquiry that 
I I don't see a single topic that is outside its range, to be honest. Right. Pretty much every topic or area of study could benefit from a little bit of uh, sexuality research in it as well. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. Well, where can people go to find out, learn more about you, learn more about your work, your research? Is there anything you'd like to shout out? Um, of course, I have a public Twitter profile. So if you look for me, you'll see my Twitter page, but my Twitter handle is Shady Poetics, long story, which we won't go into now. Um, and I also have a website. So it's shraddhachatterjee.com. And you can read a little bit about my research or my teaching or my publications from there. And of course, if you want to reach out, find me on social media, send me a DM or a shout out or something, and I'm happy to talk. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Shraddha. Everything you've said has just been so incredibly insightful, and I'm sure will be really helpful to anyone thinking about studying sexuality. Thank you so much, Helen. I think your questions were fantastic and, and, and really very, very insightful as well. So this experience has been lovely. All right. Thank you, Shraddha. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sexuality Studies Spotlight. This podcast was made possible through support from the York University Sexuality Studies Program, Innovation York's Knowledge Mobilization Unit, and the Media Creation Lab at Scott Library. We would also like to thank all of our hosts and guests for sharing their stories with us. This podcast was produced on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, and we invite our audience to visit nativeland.ca to learn more about the land where they're listening. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us in the next episode.